Previously on Flying the Line. The United States fights a global war as ALPA fights to protect its pilots. With airline operators using wartime needs as an excuse to roll back flying limits, ALPA successfully navigates the tension between maintaining the safety of the aviation system and fulfilling its patriotic duty. In the end, both the Allies and ALPA win their respective battles. But the new peace would lead to new challenges. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Abridged from the book, Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 12, The TWA Strike of 1946, Part 1. Golden Boys sneered the cover of Time magazine as ALPA neared the deadline for its first true strike in the fall of 1946. For the average citizen, the notion of well-paid airline pilots going out on strike was incomprehensible. The average American, although irritated with organized labor because of the great wave of post-war strikes, could understand why the ordinary working person would walk a picket line. Inflation was raging, wages hadn't kept up, and it was hard to make ends meet. But to be inconvenienced by airline pilots was another matter entirely. To say that ALPA lacked broad support for its strike against TWA would be a considerable understatement. The average newspaper reporter did not understand the issues. It was for this reason that news stories were often more confusing than informative. On top of this, Many labor leaders were not sympathetic. When Time magazine referred to ALPA President Dave Bankey as, quote, a suave, self-assured retired pilot who looks about as radical as a Philadelphia mainliner, unquote, it played on the prejudices of ordinary working people who couldn't understand why pilots earning as much as $10,000 a year should be out on a picket line seeking public support. In order to understand the roots of the TWA strike, we must discuss three complicated issues. The four-engine pay dispute, the airline's attempt to negotiate on an industry-wide basis, and the nature of Banky's leadership in the post-World War II period. To elaborate on this last point, Banky selected New York labor lawyer Henry Weiss, who was recommended by Ferrello LaGuardia, to assist Banky when the legal tangles got too intense for ALPA staff. Without the hero worship many airline pilots felt for Banky, Weiss viewed him as an intractable negotiator, with perhaps a dash of paranoia triggered by the strike on TWA in 1946. Weiss came to be a valued associate of Banky, who was known to be abusive to other staff lawyers especially, and observed the union president to be a hard-driving, suspicious, withdrawn person by nature who knew how to form a union, but didn't really have the ability to run it successfully once it got underway. Banky's good fortune during the 1946 TWA strike was to be surrounded by pilots who carried him at a time when his shortcomings were becoming obvious. Jim Rowe was one of those pilots. After leaving the Army, 
Rowe was thrust into leadership as TWA's Master Executive Council Chairman and embroiled into the new four-engine pay problem. The four-engine pay controversy at TWA was brewing for a long time. It began when Boeing introduced the prototype 307 Stratoliner in 1939. This revolutionary pressurized aircraft had enormous possibilities. It could fly well over most weather, above the air sickness-inducing turbulence that had always plagued passenger operations. For Jack Fry and TWA, the airline that prided itself on always being one technological step ahead of the competition, an aircraft like the Boeing 307 was irresistible. With the help of Howard Hughes's millions, Fry had committed TWA to the purchase of five Stratoliners in 1939, but the aircraft were not delivered until just before World War II. The Army drafted all five shortly thereafter, but in the brief period the Stratoliners operated for TWA, they set new standards for comfort and luxury. United Airlines announced in August 1939 that it too was entering the four-engine era with the purchase of six Douglas DC-4s. The Stratoliner would lose out to Douglas's DC-4 after the war, but it was the Stratoliner that first got Dave Banky's attention. Banky moved immediately to negotiate amendments to TWA's contract when the Stratoliner appeared. Technically, only an amendment to the existing contract was necessary. TWA resisted, and so no contract amendment was signed by the time the military commandeered the aircraft. ALPA's first encounter with the four-engine issue came at the Central Executive Council meeting on April 29, 1939. After a good deal of wrangling, several council members expressed the opinion that Banky should approach the pay issue on the basis of the weight of the aircraft, not the number of engines. Banky disapproved of this notion, preferring instead to stress the dangers of operating four-engine aircraft. Despite the dissension among the council members, Banky persisted in his argument that since the new aircraft would fly faster and encounter more weather and cover more miles, the pilots would encounter increased hazards, so they deserved higher pay. Banky also believed that having two additional engines to monitor would add to the distractions present, increasing the workload and offsetting any absolute gain in safety, a largely outdated viewpoint in 1939. Despite repeated efforts to negotiate pay scales for these new aircraft, ALPA got nowhere. There were two arbitration awards in 1941 and again in 1945. The 1945 award only slightly increased pay for Stratoliner flying. Pay scales for the DC-4 and the Lockheed Constellation were still unsettled when these aircraft were ready to enter service. Historical accidents were on Banky's side, however. Although most pilots were already uncomfortable with some of his archaic notions about hazard pay, the launch of every four-engine aircraft after World War II was marred by fatal accidents, often caused by design errors. Both the Lockheed Constellation 
and the pressurized version of the DC-4, the DC-6, were temporarily grounded following fatal accidents. Philosophical considerations aside, every pilot agreed that the new aircraft should pay more than the old ones. The problem was how to negotiate pay scales that would take into account the new complexities of the aircraft, their heavier weight, higher passenger loads, and increased takeoff and landing speeds without doing harm to certain positive aspects of Decision 83, ALPA's historic security blanket. The company zeroed in on this internal conflict and suddenly became zealous defenders of Decision 83, arguing that it provided a more than fair and practical system for determining pay on all aircraft. Why this great turnaround? The answer lay in the fact that Decision 83, which the operators opposed in the past, had an hourly pay scale that paid more incrementally for faster equipment. But the scale topped out at only 200 miles per hour. In 1934, no one thought airplanes could fly much faster than that, but four-engine aircraft easily exceeded the scale. So Decision 83's speed-pegged component automatically guaranteeing pilots an increased share of the aircraft's productivity was something of a time bomb. Had Banky been willing to compromise on the issue of industry-wide bargaining, the companies might have in turn been willing to renegotiate on the Decision 83 pay scales. They might even have been willing to change Decision 83's co-pilot pay scales which were set at straight monthly amounts according to seniority, topping out at only $225 a month. Admittedly, these were only minimum guarantees, which could be raised by contract negotiations. TWA co-pilots were earning $380 per month in 1946, and those on the carrier's intercontinental divisions over ocean routes eligible to earn another $30 per month if they qualified as navigators. In fact, pilot pay had risen overall since Decision 83 went into effect, largely because the average speed of aircraft kept increasing during the 1930s. Nevertheless, Banky was technically correct when he insisted that airline pilots had not had a basic pay raise since 1934. During this period, the airline industry was attempting to negotiate one contract covering all airlines, while Banky wanted to continue negotiating one airline at a time, which allowed the pilots of one airline to get a little something, thus providing their counterparts on another airline a target to shoot for in their own negotiations. Today, this is known as pattern bargaining. Although historically, Labor unions had favored industry-wide bargaining while employers had opposed it. In the air transport industry, it was exactly the opposite. One of Dave Banke's most brilliant maneuvers had been to include the pilots under the 1926 law designed to prevent the halting of interstate commerce. The 1936 Pilots' Amendment to the Railway Labor Act of 1926 gave Banky a technical argument in favor of airline-by-airline -airline negotiations, and he clung to it tenaciously. The airline companies did not realize the disadvantage of the one-by-one -one negotiating arrangement 
until the first contracts started coming in. They resolved to fight it when they saw how skillfully Banky used the technique of exploiting a special circumstance at one airline to win something another airline would never have given up. The second airline would subsequently feel pressure to concede, however, because a competitor would have given the game away earlier. The period leading up to the TWA strike was replete with fruitless negotiations, endless mediation, and unsuccessful maneuvers. Neither side was willing to give up on the fundamentals. Even the Presidential Emergency Board, appointed in May 1946 by Harry Truman, couldn't solve the problem. The Airlines Negotiating Committee, a new agency set up by the Civil Aeronautics Board specifically for bargaining, hung tough. But so did Banky. Any mediation that involved more than one airline resulted in an ALPA walkout and vice versa on the part of the companies. Until Banky agreed to recognize the airline's negotiating committee, a new four-engine contract would not exist for anybody. There was such a deadlock that even a strike vote couldn't shake the committee loose. TWA's pilots took a strike authorization vote on March 26, 1946, approving it by a margin of 812 to 9. Truman's Presidential Emergency Board delayed it, but couldn't stop it. Robert Buck, who went to work for TWA in 1937 and later played a major role in ALPA affairs, remembers that management didn't take the vote seriously. TWA owner Jack Fry was in Washington trying to gain international routes, which left TWA's vice president for operations, John Collins, running the airline. Banky had a hard time assimilating the myriad of details associated with the incessant maneuvering, mediating, and negotiating the TWA negotiation required. He began reverting to old tactics, sending out long, rambling denunciations of TWA's management and of the airline's negotiating committee, while also flooding the newspapers with vitriolic press releases much as he had done back in 1933. He was fixed on TWA, unable to concentrate on major issues because he was so intimately wrapped up in minor ones. In the meantime, the day of reckoning kept getting closer. The new four-engine aircraft kept arriving, and the pilots kept checking out. Perhaps it was too much for any man. Certainly, it was too much for Banky. Then. On May 21, 1946, during the height of the TWA controversy, Banky collapsed and had to be taken to the hospital. Next time on Flying the Line, TWA's pilots walk out of the cockpit and take their fight to the streets. Thank you for listening. This has been part one of Chapter 12 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins, copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. 
Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright ALPA 2020. All rights reserved. <laughs>